Father, once again, we come to your word. Um, 603, 7. We pray that you will, uh, we pray that you will not just be present with us because we know you are present with us, but that you will move our spirits and our hearts to not only be aware of your presence, but to um, be changed by your spirit and your work. And as your church, we, we come to your word to know more about your son. But it's not enough to just know him intellectually. We want to know him um, with all that we are, with our emotions, with our heart, with our will, with our mind. So help us to see him, to see ourselves in, um, in relief against him to know holiness and truth and righteousness in him and as your people as his church to be drawn to him our lives to be illuminated by his light our sin and our righteousness revealed solely and completely through his presence we pray all of this by your Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son. Amen. We're going to turn to John chapter 13. And we are um, taking a couple of weeks to just look at John 13. Last week we, we started with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Um, I appreciate all the kind words that Jim, uh, Jim shared at the devotion, the checks in the mail. Um, but uh, we, are, we are diving into really, we're, we're, we're moving toward the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. And there's a key moment here that John presents to us in a unique way. The other three Gospels, um, what we call the synoptics, which means it's Latin for see together. Um, the, the, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell this pretty much the same way. But John steps in and he wants to present it in a slightly different perspective. And I think there's a good reason for that. Um, I think that John, as I've mentioned before, he's writing to the second and third generation of believers. And in that first that, that first century of the church, uh, there were a lot of people, there was a lot of excitement, there was a lot of exuberance, there was a, a, a lot of buzz around this Jesus guy, and there were a lot of people who were coming into the church, but they weren't a part of the church. And they got involved, and they, they were in ministry, and they were, uh, they were living alongside these people, but they weren't true believers and along the way, it became very obvious and there were problems and there were divisions and there were, there was struggles and there, there were, there were power struggles. And, and we see that particularly in the book of Revelation and the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation, there's a, a series of letters to seven churches in what is today Western Turkey, um, the, the nation of Turkey, um, the, the, uh, it's called Anatolia or Asia Minor um, in, in Roman sources. But there were, there were seven churches there. And some of those churches had these very, very corrupting influences. And the problem, the struggle was, where do you draw the line? Where do you say, okay, 
this, this is no longer, what you're doing is no longer church. What you're doing is no longer about Christ. You, and you, you need to go. And, and we as the church, that's a, that's a tough call to make. We, we want people to be with us. We want people to see Jesus. We, we hope and we pray for, for those who come in and, and they're not believers. You know, we hope and pray that they, they come to faith in Christ. So John tells the story of Judas Iscariot a little bit different than the other gospel writers. And I think the reason that he does it, the reason that he lets us know, hey, Judas Iscariot was there when Jesus washed the feet of, feet of the disciples. He's helping us to know where to draw the line. So I want to invite you, John, John chapter 13 and verse 21. Now keep in mind, I'm going to read verse 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he, he's identifying his apostles as his messengers. And then in verse 21, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I'm going to come back to that word because um, I'm not sure troubled's the best translation. And testified or bore witness, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him. Um, the, I love this. The Greek word is actually nodded. Um, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Um, this disciple whom Jesus loved is John, the guy that wrote this gospel. Um, we're 99.9% we're sure. Um, and John was actually Simon Peter's young cousin. Simon Peter's older, probably in his 30s. He's got a, a, he's got a mother-in-law, which means he's got a wife and he's got kids. And John is probably 17, 18 years old. So if your older cousin looks at you and goes, hey, I've got to ask him a question. John asks a question. Um, Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread um, when I have dipped it. Um, and the word morsel of bread, just in case you're taking notes, the Greek word, it means pinched. You think about taking a piece of bread, just pinching a piece of bread off of a, of a loaf. That's, that's where that word comes from. Um, I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, this is after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one knew, at the table knew why he said this to him, some thought that because Judas thought that because Judas was uh, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I'm going to come back to that line at the end there. It was night, but Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples. And um, 
they're reclined at the table. Now, um, it's interesting. The, the, the Jews, generally speaking, uh, we, we don't know exactly how they did these feasts in the first century. We have some later records um, about how Jews were doing it in the, the second century, and we kind of can project, but we don't really know. But the way that Jesus, the way that John describes this feast, the way they're seated in this feast, is not as we're familiar with the Leonardo DiCaprio or Leonardo da Vinci, you know, um, and the disciples are all seated at a table. There, there was no actual like high table. Um, they were laying on cushions. And what you did was the, the head guy, um, the main person that was there, he would lay down and then a person would, would they would kind of lay, you know, lean on, on their elbow and, and eat, um, uh, in a, in a circle. Um, and, and normally you'd lean on your left elbow and eat with your right hand, um, because that was, that was kind of, that was the clean hand. And there's, there's a lot going on. This is why, by the way, you had to wash feet. If you're laying in a circle, there are a lot of stinky feet around you. Um, so, so they're, they're, they're in this circle. And as near as we can tell, and I, and I kind of want to say this to you so you can see it. Um, Jesus is laying down and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's close to him. He's close enough that when Simon Peter nods at him and says, hey, ask Jesus who, who he's talking about, John can lean backwards and ask the question. All right, so that's how close he is to Jesus. He, leans, he can lean back and say, Jesus, who is he talking about? Now, we modern Western males would be very uncomfortable with this seating arrangement. Um, this is not how we sit and eat. We like distance. We like you across the table from me, not leaning against my chest while I'm eating. That's not cool. Um, but this is what they were doing, and, and um, the seller's sitting. And as near as we can tell, um, if John is on Jesus' uh, right or left, probably his right, Judas is on his left. He's sitting right next to Jesus. Because Jesus can talk to Judas and nobody knows what he says. So he has to be pretty close to Jesus. In fact, it's a really weird situation in that it may be that John is leaning on Jesus and Jesus is leaning on Judas. And that would really make for an interesting situation, right? But as Jesus is sitting there, he, he's finished talking. He says, um, the Bible says that his spirit was troubled. Uh, the, the word troubled um, here, which is a word that John uses all the time, um, it means to be stirred or to agitated. It doesn't necessarily mean troubled in the negative sense of things, but rather that it just comes to movement. Um, think, think about, um, you, you look at a perfect, placid um, you know, pool, you're just, you're just laying next to the pool and everything is great, um, and then somebody cannonballs into it. Um, it, it becomes troubled. Uh, my brother-in-law, Doug, one time cannonballed into my sister's um, above-ground pool. I have a video recording of this from an old camera. I do not know how he did it, but he did it in such a way that when he hit the water, the, the, he went down and the walls of the pool actually bent out. And then when the water shut up into the air, it squeezed in and there was like a sonic boom. It was the most impressive cannonball I've ever seen in my life. There was water hitting airplanes as they flew over us. It was wild. 
Um, he just mastered the cannonball. Um, and, uh, but, you know, when something's placid, when things start to move, those things are disturbed or they are troubled or they are agitated. We, we actually have a moment earlier in John. Um, there's a, a, Jesus is talking to a, a man, a lame man on the pool of Bethsaida, um, and uh, the pool of Bethesda, and, and um, and the, he says that we're waiting for the water to be agitated. We're waiting for, I'm waiting for the water to be stirred because that's when I know the presence of God is there. Uh, same thing happens in John 11 when Jesus uh, weeps. In John 11:32, the ne- it says that his, his spirit was troubled or stirred. There was something in Jesus that um, he knew when the moment was coming, this movement or activity. And Jesus, when Jesus' spirit is stirred, he's moved to action. And so he speaks to the disciples in such a way that it has to force, it forces the disciples to either believe or reject. Jesus says, there's one of you, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And that single statement is going to cause the disciples to either get on board or get out the door. Because now there is the reality that Jesus knows the hearts of those who are following him. He knows their darkness. He knows knows their doubts. But he knows who is on the edge of those doubts turning into treachery. And make no mistake about it, every single one of the 12 are struggling to understand what Jesus is doing. Don't don't for a second think that Jesus called these guys and they just became perfect, saintly believers and never had any questions. All you have to do is read the Gospels. Every time Jesus does something, they're like, uh... They, they are struggling with this, and they should be struggling with this. The disciples should be struggling with Jesus. It's not every day that God the Son walks among you. But one of them is going to betray him. Disciples look at one another, right? And I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't then say, and I'm going to point out who it is. He waits because the disciples look around and Simon Peter, always well known for his ability to put his foot in his mouth, to run ahead of everything else. Simon Peter goes, he looks at John, he goes, hey. Now, this is what I love. I I just love the fact that Simon Peter is probably on the other side of the room, right? He's down at the bottom of this thing, uh, this whole eating circle. He's sitting across from Jesus. He can see what's going on. He looks at his, his cousin, John. He goes, and John goes, oh yeah, Jesus, who is it? You know, I just love that there's like, they're able to do this. But um, Simon Peter, because the, the, it literally means Simon Peter nodded. He doesn't speak to John. He just looks at him and John goes, oh yeah, I got to ask the question. Simon motions to him in verse 25. The disciples ask Jesus, who is it? And then Jesus does this weird thing. He, He takes something that is meant to be a sign of fellowship and friendship and communion. To this day in Mediterranean cultures, 
it's, it's a great sign of friendship to pinch off a piece of bread from a loaf of, and dip it in wine or, or, or whatever it is that you have, hummus or whatever, and, and to give it to your friend. This is, this is, it's a very common thing, right? This is the root of the word breaking bread. Um, it's, it's the idea behind, I mean, this is, I mean, this is why we have broken bread when we do communion. Um, this ancient society was this, this idea that you were, you were inviting somebody into communion with you, into intimacy with you. And Jesus is, um, close enough to Judas that he can just pinch off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine and hand it to him. And at the moment that he does this, Judas decides. Don't miss that. Now we know that Judas was really thinking about betraying Jesus. But it's at the moment when Jesus makes this intimate motion, this call to Judas to be in fellowship with him, that Judas decides to betray him. John says that Satan enters into him. It's funny, I was reading a commentary, um, uh, and there's a couple of major theologians that say this, that that bread was the bread of demonic presence. I'm like, what? Somebody's overreading the Bible. If you ever hear me refer to overreading, overreading is when somebody makes up something absurd because they're being literal. All right. What is Jesus doing? He's not passing Satan on to, P, to, to Judas Iscariot. Satan's been tempting Judas Iscariot to, to betray Jesus. He's been playing with him. He's been messing with him. Judas is open to it. And Jesus presents Judas with a challenge. Come into intimacy with me. Come with me. Be one of mine. Even at the moment that Jesus knows Judas is betraying him, is going to betray him, Jesus is reaching out to call him back to himself. Isn't that extraordinary? Knowing that his act of friendship will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and make the friend into the traitor. He still gives Judas a chance. There's a whole lesson we could get out of that, right? Jesus talks about loving our enemies because it's easy to love our friends. He reaches out to him. Judas hesitates, I think. Right? It says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. I think Judas is holding this. And he's realized he's He's down this road. By the way, Judas' inability to repent at this moment had nothing to do with Jesus not being willing to forgive. It had everything to to do with Judas listening to his own voice and the voice of Satan rather than the voice of Christ. People say, well, God could never forgive me for the things that I do. That's your opinion, not his. He takes the bread and I picture Judas looking at that bread 
Jesus looking at Judas. Jesus had a way of looking at you that he could see your soul. It had to have been freaky. All right? I've just pictured Judas, Jesus as one of those people that just looks at you. He's got kind of the mom look. You know the look I'm talking about when mom looks at you and she knows what you've been up to and you're trying to pretend like you're not up to anything and she's seeing to your soul, right? Moms, I one day would hope to learn that, but I have a feeling it's just a, a female thing. Um, Judas is holding this bread. He doesn't eat it. He's just holding it. And then Jesus says, all right, verse, uh, verse 27, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, the way that this is phrased, if I were to, to translate this idiomatically, I think it's this. Jesus says to him, it's time for you to go. You've crossed the line. You don't belong here anymore. You've joined the other team. Don't waste time pretending. I know what's really going on. Look at how unbelievably honest Jesus is with Judas. He doesn't pretend he's he's not he, he's offering the ability to repent and turn but when the choice is made jesus doesn't go well it's okay maybe we can still work it out you've made your choice it's time for you to go he's decisive he's direct he is absolute in his completely laconic way of dealing with Judas. He doesn't get into an argument about Ju- with Judas about how it would be so much better if when he accepted the morsel, he would go ahead and, and make the decision to just kind of take one step toward this. If we could just work together. don't Let's not give up on our relationship here, Jesus, Judas. I know that you've been indwelled by Satan and you're choosing to betray me, but, but I, I'm willing to tolerate you as you are. This is Judas. Just go. Go do it now. I know what you're doing. I know that you've decided. I know where you're going. Just go. Now, I want you to know, I really honestly believe Jesus' heart is breaking. One of his closest friends is refusing to hear the voice of God the Spirit of God, refusing to hear the testimony of Scripture, refusing to recognize the signs that Jesus has been laying out, and I really honestly believe Jesus' heart breaks over Judas. Now, the disciples have no idea what's going on. I love, by the way, that their conclusion is that Jesus is asking Judas to go buy more food. That tells you a little bit, I think, about Simon, Peter, Andrew, Philip, and all these other guys. They're like, well, honestly, they're kind of like after communion. They're like, well, that was nice, but that was not really a snack. Could we get some cheese Whiz or maybe some cookies or something? Cause this is, and, and this is a, a liturgical meal. They're not having a big blowout meal. Uh, by the way, they're not eating the Passover lamb. Which is, which is fascinating. Whether uh, they're actually at the Passover meal or not is often debated. 
Um, they may have eaten and it's just not mentioned, you know. But this is after the meal. This is the end, you know. So immediately, so verse 30, I'm not going to talk about the guy, the disciples. After receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. And this, this I, I sat and stared at this line. The, the synoptic gospels all say, in the evening, they gathered for the meal. It's the very first way they introduce it. But John waits until the very end, and then he says, and it was night. Isn't that interesting? You know that all through the Gospel of John, there are only two other things that happen at night up to this point. One is Nicodemus coming to Jesus because he's too ashamed to come to Jesus during the day. And the other is Jesus walking on the water because the disciples are stuck in the middle of a storm. Now, the rest of what happens will occur in this night. And I can't help but remind that Jesus is presented in the book of John as the light. And Jesus perpetually tells them, you know, I am the light. I am the light. But now we've walked into the night. Up until this point, every time somebody comes to confront Jesus or attack Jesus, it's during the day. And he says to them, I've been in the temple the whole time. Standing right in the middle of the daylight. What is your issue? But now they come to the night. And I don't think it's a mistake this line is here. Take a minute with me. Just turn back a couple pages to, um, to John 11. I think he was anticipating this. John 11, chapter 9, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus answers his disciples. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It had to be at night. To prove how lost Judas was. He was lost. He, during the day, he was able to follow Jesus and look like a disciple. But in the night, he stumbles and falls. Up until this point, Judas could pass himself off as a disciple living in the daylight. But here, Judas descends rapidly. He goes from Jesus washing his feet to sitting at the table to possessed by Satan to betraying him in the darkness in one conversation. Because for Judas, it's always been night. It's always been dark. 
He's always just been stumbling along. He's been doing his best, but he doesn't really understand what Jesus is doing. If I could leave you with one idea here. The reason that Judas is stumbling in the dark rather than staying close to the light. By the way, um, this is a side thing, but in the first epistle of John, which I think John actually wrote before he wrote his gospel, I won't get into the details of this. I think the gospel is actually the last thing that John writes, um, that he writes Revelation first and then he writes the first, the three letters. But um, in first John, um, Jesus, he actually says, we have to stay in the light. And if we stay in the light, we won't sin. I think John is thinking about Judas, his friend, who in the night stumbled and fell away. Let me just put this. How do we make a decision about who to follow, who to fellowship with, who to listen to, who is, who is a follower of Christ? Here's the issue with Judas. Judas's agenda for Jesus overrode his devotion to Jesus. Judas had an idea of who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. And during the day, he could follow Jesus and nod his head and say, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're on. But in the night... He's waiting for Jesus to fit his expectations, his desires, his wants, his needs. Judas is trying to force the God of the universe, the Savior of all mankind, to fulfill his to-do list. to take care of the things that he wants done. And I honestly do believe that Judas was well-intentioned but painfully wrong. When he betrays Jesus, I am convinced that Judas believed that by betraying Jesus, he would force Jesus to rise up against the rulers of the day. He would force Jesus to be who Jesus claimed to be. That Jesus would never allow the the high priests and the Romans to crucify him. If Jesus really was the Christ, well, Judas had a whole list of things the Christ would do and go to the cross was not one of them. He was well-intentioned, but he was satanically wrong. Because his agenda for Jesus, which is revealed in this night, was given to him by his own selfish desires and the great deceiver himself, Satan. How do we know who to listen to in the great sphere of Christianity, Christian publishing, Christian music, all these things? Uh, We have an ongoing conversation when it comes to music in our church of who we can use and who we can't. Because there are some people who write some really good music who believe some really terrible doctrine. Um, 
there are some there are some folks who have some iffy doctrine and kind of can see where they're going. And then there are some people who are just way, way off. How do we make a decision? Is their agenda for Jesus greater than their devotion to Jesus? If their music is all about everything Jesus does for them, run away. If someone's theology starts with their personality and what they receive and what you too can receive for only six easy payments of $99.95, run away. Because they are going to take you into the darkness and you're going to stumble and be lost. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. But if I go off into the valley of shadow of death just expecting Jesus to follow me, guess what? You're going to be in the valley of the shadow of death alone. The truth is that we as followers of Christ are called to be in the light of day. By the way, and I'll leave you with this, you know that at the end of the book of Revelation... When John sees the new Jerusalem, he says there's no need for the sun anymore because Jesus is the light. John longs for a day when his world is illuminated not by the the sun and the moon but illuminated pure and holy by Jesus' presence alone. And you know what? We're not going to get it in this present world, but that doesn't mean we can't long for it. We can't live for the light of Christ to be shown on our agendas and our plans and our ministries and our strategies and to illuminate those things which are about ourselves so that we can see them and we can cast them aside and focus on Him and Him alone. When the time came for Judas, when Jesus offered, Judas chose his agenda and his plan over Jesus' glory. He chose his agenda for Jesus over his devotion to Jesus. Now, without getting into too much, just remember, another disciple fails Jesus. All of them run away, but another disciple fails Jesus. The difference being, when Jesus, when he does it, he realizes what he does. And he falls on his knees. We'll get to him eventually. How do we decide what voices to hear? How do we decide what is just a flashlight in the night? And something illuminated by Christ himself. Is it about an agenda for Jesus 
This is what Jesus can do for you. This is what Jesus will do for you. This is how things, this is how we convince Jesus to handle things for us. Or is it about our devotion to him? Say what you will about the disciples, the other 11. Call them bums, call them losers. Say they failed in their faith. But the fact of the matter is, they didn't betray him. They didn't go out in the night. They fell asleep. They denied. They struggled. But they always came back. Because their devotion to Jesus, their agenda was always subordinate to their devotion. You can build a memorial to yourself and put Jesus' name on it and say, I lived a good Christian life. Or you can be devoted to him and live in the light of his word. I think as a church, we need to be devoted to him. We need to walk in the light. We need to be his. Please join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, I wish that everything done in your name was worthy of your name. But it's not. I wish that the church was pure and that we could not have to spend so much time discriminating between the Judas agendas and your will. But it's not. Give us the discernment of your Holy Spirit to look at ourselves and to look at that which influences us. And above all things, to be about our devotion to you. When you challenge us and convict us, give us the strength to choose you over us. When you expose false teaching, help us to have the resolve and the faith and the confidence to call it what it is. And stay true to you. And Lord, when we stumble, when we are not true, help us to always know your reaching hand, calling us to repentance, calling us to restoration, calling us to hope, calling us to light, no matter how dark the path we go down. And may we turn to you. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.